Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is made possible by Rio Products. All Rio lines are made with pride in Idaho, USA. Here they are individually designed and meticulously tested to ensure that every single model and size of fly line does its job perfectly. All of Rio's saltwater lines have a tough, hard coating made to withstand all the punishment a saltwater angler can throw at it. I personally use the Rio Leviathan line when I'm bill fishing, and I have nothing but confidence. You can find the full lineup of Rio products at www.rioproducts.com. Dean Butler's recognition extends far beyond the Southern Hemisphere. A famed offshore captain, Dean has seen more fly fishing world records than most. From Australia to Panama to New Guinea to the Florida Keys, Dean has been almost everywhere and he holds some serious credibility in the saltwater angling community. I met with Dean at his home in Shoal Bay, Australia to sit down with him for his first ever podcast. He'd always been on my top 10 list of people to fish with and after hearing his stories, he may now be right at the very front. I'll let you know straight away that chronologically, my brain doesn't work real good. My brain doesn't work real good nowadays anyway. But, <laughs> um, I've had to really look hard to put uh, dates to things that I've done and stuff like that. But, yeah, it, it, it is a short history. Um, I think you've spoken to some of the main players in fly fishing anyway and, and fishing overall in Australia. Uh, and I guess it probably goes back, and I'm not the one that to do the full history, but 50, 60 years ago, I guess, there was guys starting to sports fish, and I think that that's where Australia, 
was leading the way in a lot of ways with our sport fishing because we had such a unique habitat or unique variety of fish species, we evolved definitely to other places in the world. Yeah. Ron Calcup was one of the first guys that, as far as I'm concerned, really saw what was happening in Australia and then produced a vehicle to present that to people through the Fishing World magazine and fishing films. Like, we make... There's fishing videos or now they're DVDs or whatever they are and there's short yeah. films now, but he made fishing films back in the early 80s, I guess. Okay. He was the first one to have fishing on television. But anyway, through that, that was where I first saw where I really got hooked on on fishing and, and the idea of it by watching Ron Kelcutt's movies on television. He, he had a show on the ABC in the very early 80s, I think. And then, of course, came Fishing World, the magazine, and I remember that as a black and white production, and I used to buy that and all other... I've got magazines in, the, in my shed there, just miles and miles of magazines from the old days. It was a really big part of uh, my... Uh, getting to love fishing, you know. Now, was this fly fishing or just fishing? Sports fishing. It, it was, And sport fishing is, that is, it was born in Australia, although it was done in other places around the world, called different things. I, I honestly believe that the birth of sport fishing and what my interpretation of it is, is it happened here in Australia. Fishing line classes, light, light tackle to catch big fish, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah giving the fish a fair chance. Right. Um, and with that, tackle was developed to do the various things because we don't have largemouth bass here. We don't have muskies and the stuff they chase in Europe. And we do have trout, but it's a limited fishery, or it was. It's getting bigger, I think. But, yeah, we, we you can stand on the rocks and throw heavy lures mm-hmm. 200 yards out into the ocean and catch all sorts of things. And I remember Ron's early stuff was about that, you know. Right. And uh, so tackle and fishing rods and reels and lures evolved here in Australia as part of that sport fishing scene. Mm. And uh, it's to, still today, I think, we're ahead in a lot of things around the world. And, you know, not so much fly fishing. That came a little bit later, but... With that sport fishing tackle and 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 that the idea of trying to catch the biggest fish you could on a on a light line that was Australia. No, oh, so this whole IGFA thing really is in you from the beginning. Well, and I will get to that. I, I know will get we'll to get to IGFA. Yeah, well, I guess it is. You know, we had ANSA, Australian National Sport Fishing Association, which which I was involved in as a young young fella, seventeen, eighteen years of age, I guess, and sort of stepped away from that a little bit, but. The idea of the fishing being a sport, not a, not, you know, I love to harvest fish for food and, mm-hmm. and I don't use sports fishing tackle to do that in most cases nowadays. But, but the idea of giving the fish a fair chance, yeah, I guess I've always been like that. Mm-hmm. And, and the IGFA and certainly fly fishing, which gives most fish stupid amounts of chances. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is, is the way I evolved, I guess. Well, let's talk about where you started then. Right now we are in... Shoal Bay, Port Stephens. Well, Port Stephens is the area. The, okay. the, the water waterway, the estuary, uh, is Port Stephens, and it's uh, Shoal Bay, Nelson Bay, Anna Bay, Salamander Bay, and the various little bays, little towns around the place. So the area, it, yeah, it's known as Port Stephens. It's... Um, We've been here nearly 20 years, I guess, or 95, yeah, 20 years. Were you born here? No. No, I was born in Victoria. Oh, you were? Yeah. Don't, tell, don't tell many people that. <laughs> um, what yeah. brought you to New South Wales? Well, I was living in Cairns. We were living, I've lived in most of the states on the East Coast anyway, oh, cool. but um, 
the sort of fishing I was getting into as a 18 to 20 year old and, and, and when I decided to leave Victoria, it, it was fairly limited. I used to travel from Melbourne to Bermagui, which was, I think, in, back then about a 13-hour car trip okay. to go fishing for two days and then get back to work on Monday morning. Did you know? your dad fish or anyone in your family? No, fish? My, my dad was the worst fisherman ever. He okay. fished with him <laughs> one time. But it's funny that I was about three or five or six years of age. I remember it's one of the the most vivid childhood memories I have, and I think it was the hook that got me into fishing. Was I went out with Dad went out with a buddy that I think they just went out to drink, and he had a boat and uh, down in Port Phillip Bay, and it was me and my little brother and and Dad and his mate who I, I can't remember who it was, but. We went fishing first time. We didn't do a lot of things with Dad, but this was one of them. And, and we were hand-lining with a cork line, classic old story, catching flathead. And there was lots of flathead. And I'd, it seemed to me that the whole of the bay was carpeted with these little flathead. And I caught the most. And I just loved it. And when everyone else was over it, I was still going. And I, <laughs> that was the first and only time I fished with my dad. But And it was probably another six or seven years before I got into it seriously. But it, I remember that day. And then I'll rem- I remember the second time that I, I thought, wow, I really dig this fishing was uh, about five or six years later. I was about 11, I guess. And I was hanging out with a friend and he had a fishing magazine and it had a, it was called, it was a modern fishing magazine. It had a picture of a guy with glasses on holding a little Trevally, about a pound, you know, a kilo Trevally. And it turned out to be a guy called Vic McChrystal and it was caught on a lure. And I said, to my buddy who we'd fished a couple of times but I said you know I'm into this he said yeah well I am too so we started fishing a lot together down on the Yarra River where where we lived in Melbourne and that was pretty much the start of it you know and that I'll never forget that fishing magazine cover as the second trigger to what I really you know that was something I really wanted to do so you're 54 now yep okay so this was some time ago long time ago yeah (laughs) I'm trying to be polite yeah it was about 40 years ago I'd say 40 something years ago so you left Victoria when you were 18-ish no I left Victoria I was in a job in Victoria I'd left school I'd finished school at 16 well I didn't finish I left I was over we didn't I didn't do good and they didn't like me so (laughs) I had a few different jobs then I got into a job in the automotive ball and roller bearing business and start at the bottom and, and work my way up through through the various uh, steps of that ladder yeah. and um, at about 21, 22, uh, having been an avid reader of Fishing World and following wrong Calcutt stuff and reading about Rod Harrison and all of that, I, I had a disposable income and, and I went on a trip and one of the things that Ron brought to Australia is the fan to the world in a lot of ways is the first ever organised fishing travel, packaged fishing travel. He And he had the perfect vehicle to promote it. He'd go and find those places, take photographs, write stories, put a package together, and it was all part of his. In fact, that was the model that I followed years later. But So anyway, I read a story about Lord Howe Island, and I wanted to... I'd been doing my game fishing out of Bermagui with limited success. I was fishing... For trout in various parts of Victoria, and, and um, yeah, so paid my money and went to oh, Lord Howe. You're going on the trip I on just, the magazine. Yeah, I just signed up, joined a group of people I never knew, and, and I guess I was trying to work that out. But it was that was probably 33, 34 years ago. Images of 
Rod Harrison holding giant kingfish and Kel Cut's movie about them catching the elephants and fishing off the rocks and all that stuff, bang, I'm there. And I'll never forget, I joined a group of people I'd never met before. Um, it was all really new, it really was. And Lord Howe Island, 30 years ago, was a pretty cool place. It still is. One I, of my I don't even know where that is. Where is that? It's 350 miles due east of Port Macquarie. You should go there. But uh, So we arrive, and we'd only just got to know each other, the, the group of people who turned out to be good friends and... We had some great times together, but I'll never forget looking out the window, the aeroplanes had landed, having my mind blown by how beautiful the place was arriving there, and there's this motorbike coming down the down the road alongside the strip, and the island, Lord Howe Island's 5Ks by 7Ks, I think. It's a small little place, but it's quite dramatic with mountains at one end, and yeah, all of this is going on, and the beauty blew me away, but the thing that blew me away the most is this motorbike coming down the track, alongside the airport to meet the aeroplane. And there's quite a stout fellow, like it, there was a lot of this fellow on the motorcycle and it turned out to be Rod Harrison. Oh, really? Who we didn't know was going to be there and he was going to be our guide for the trip. So that was where I first met Rod and that was a pretty big deal for me. Because he was pretty famous at the time, right? Oh, he was. Rod, Rod, rightly so, was a big deal, you know. Yeah. He uh, he, he, he got on that scene with uh, Calcutt and uh, he was out there in the trenches doing all the stuff and all the stuff that we wanted to do Rod was doing you know and he was developing different things and to know Rod you know like I can't even begin to t- I got I actually do have a few good Rod stories I could probably tell but I won't <laughs> and I may do later but uh yeah he was a big deal and still is a big deal as far as I'm concerned me too he's yeah. a beauty yeah. he's a beauty he's one of my favorites so that trip that you know, I was gone by then I thought this is what I got to do and yeah. you know I knew that you know, without going into some of the unbelievable fishing we had in those days, I just knew this is what I wanted to do. I also knew that I could never make enough money to do this a couple of times a year. Mm. So I wanted to... Make a living at it. Get into fishing, make a living out of fishing. So So what's the next step from here then? Um, well, I got on really well with Rod. I, you know, I realised how lucky I was to be hanging out with him and that I could that he was mentoring me from straight away. And he did see something in you because he, I mean, he told me, he told the world that he saw promise in you. He saw something really special. Yeah, well, that's that's cool. And, you know, and, and uh, yeah, so, and we, you know, gosh, I'd, I can't wait to sit down with Rod one day and just talk about all that stuff. We talk, not enough, but a couple of times a year probably. But, yeah, to be able to sit down and talk about some of that stuff would be cool. But, um, yeah, so... We ended up doing three or four trips to Lord Howe on that gang of people. Ah. We loved it so much. And I think the first trip bombed. We didn't catch much at all. And Calcutt did a good deal for us. And we went back. And one of the guys here was a fellow called Phil Dodd. And he was a race car enthusiast. Had a pretty good income and a, and a business that ran itself. And between he and Rod and, and myself started talking about maybe doing something, a business venture of some sort. And uh, John Hankey, who's a cameraman, I guess you heard John's mm-hmm. name's come up. So, yeah, it was, okay, well, Calcut, this is a Calcut formula, but he's making films about these destinations. And they were films, you know, they weren't, they weren't video brochures or anything. They were, they were cool stories and... Uh, so yeah, we thought let's get together. Or actually, it was. It, to, I think truthfully, it was Phil Dodd had the money. 
Rod had the fame, if you like, or the or notoriety. Notoriety, and yeah. uh, Hanky was someone that John had been talking to and working with. So those three got together, and then Phil thought, well, we need, uh, and they were going to do their first trip was to Papua New Guinea. Uh-huh. And uh, that would have been in about 86 or something like that, 87 maybe. Had anyone been to Papua New Guinea? Yeah, 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 no, Rod had been there and, uh, and Vic McChrystal, that fella had been there and there'd been, you know, Norm Edwards, a Cairns lure maker, I'm sure had been up there, but it was Rod that went up there and wrote about it after Vic McChrystal, who was before my time really, but yeah, Rod had been writing about it, but the, the, the theory was, you know, you can write about these places and if you film these places and show these places to people, they're going to want to go. So that, that was how H&H was the name of the company. That was basically how it was evolving. And we made a lot of mistakes. And when I look at some of that old stuff we did, we, it's good now. But uh, we didn't have sponsors. We thought, oh, we'll just spend a pile of money and then make it back. That doesn't work. No. Today, I'm sure it doesn't work either. But, yeah, we, uh, we made good films and lost a lot of money pretty much. Well, Phil lost a lot of money. But, um, yeah, so the three of them were going to New Guinea and Phil said, well, we need a fourth. It was Phil, Rod and John. You know, 30 years ago, they're going to make a fishing film. It it was unbelievable the stuff we used to have to carry. We had, I remember one trip we did, we had 33 pieces of luggage. No way. 33 pieces of luggage. They're making them on telephones now. Yeah. So anyway... (laughs) Yeah, I was the gopher. We needed a and or a factotum. I used to like to call myself, but yeah, I did a bit of everything. I did sound recording. I did. I carried a lot of stuff. I um, could fish, and I could fish, you know, and I could back rod up. And one of my biggest parts of my job that I thought was to make sure that Rod had everything he needed all the time, ready to go, which was fish and tackle, you know, and stuff mm. like that. So I, I, I'd learned and was learning more and more about how to get all of that stuff perfect you know like knots and and uh, and connections and all of that because we were fishing you know every fish we hooked was important for mm-hmm. filming and we were in a place where the fish were pretty big and tough as well so that was i became part of that production company after that first trip we sat up there and talked about it and what we might what i might be able to do so that was when i decided to pack up and leave and i moved to queensland and my father had a home up there in Queensland, I, and he never used to use it too much. And, and I, I stayed there and was close to Rod and worked with Rod and hung out with Rod and fished with Rod and different things, and we planned all these different programs. And I can't remember how many years we that sort of that deal was going, but eventually we were, we did make some good stuff, and we I think we made 13 titles. We had Lefty Cray became part of some of that. But the thing that I really enjoyed about it was going to these remote places and working out how to get back there and make it make some money doing it. So I started to, uh, we created a uh, sports fishing adventures, uh, Rod Harrison sport fishing adventures. I'm sorry, you were yeah, in Queensland right. at this point. Oh, yeah, so I'm now living in Queensland. I'm single and uh, really just fell in love with, the, the, with Papua New Guinea for lots of reasons, but more than anything, just the, its remoteness, how wild and savage it was in so many ways there's no people there and and when you go into a river that's been rarely fished and or never fished it, it's different you know and and i guess i'm still chasing that to this day that the the feeling of fishing where no one else has before and that that is 
that's me. That's what I love doing more than anything. Mm. And, and as we all evolve, you know, uh, and I look at what happens in the world today and how hard it is to do that, uh, you know, I'm still looking. I've still got some places to go, but... It's funny to hear you say that because one of the reasons I had no problem moving half my year down here was mm. because I fish for the same reason. I don't fish for fish. I fish to feel... I don't, I'm a history buff, right? So I like... Pretending like, I mean, since I was a kid, pretending like I'm one of the indigenous people and <laughs> stalking through the woods. I love that stuff. And so in BC, I'm always trying to get lost in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And in Australia, I really felt like I could do that here. So it's interesting to speak with can you Have you found you can do that here? No, not yet. Um, in, in WA, I felt like yeah, I Yeah, well, that's about the only place you can, I, I think. Yeah. So that's kind of where my head's at. So it's super interesting. Mm. Well, it's... It, it, that's what I love, and and it's hard to find. So you know, it, it's can't get what you want a lot of the time because it's got it, in a lot of things. It's gone, you know, a lot of places it's gone. And, but you know, those years as a young man running through the jungle barefoot, like, just like you said, I just you know they say you don't know what you've lost until it's gone, and you don't really appreciate it while you're doing it. And, but yeah, it, it was a pretty good time. To, to get as much of it as I could, you know, I developed a fishing camp with the uh, help of Rod and uh, a couple of expats up there in Papua New Guinea and we started, uh, we planned to take people fishing up there and that would have been the very, I'm thinking about 88, 89 probably, the first time we we, we had organised fishing packages up to Papua New Guinea and, and I was running them on the ground, I was marketing them and running running the operation in the jungle and lots of fish, lots of fantastic uh, experiences with Lots of really keen Australians. And that was one of the really cool things too with all of that. And I'm probably skipping around here a bit. Oh, that's but all good. I've met 100 fishing guides and I've been a fishing guide pretty much for 30 years one way or another. But in those early days, the people I was fishing with were just people like me. They were young and they were keen. They saved them. You know, they worked hard to come and hang out and do what we were doing. But everyone was a fisherman. Everyone, And, you know, if you're getting a gig where you're taking people that don't fish fishing that's that's not a very good gig so well it's trying anyway well you know (laughs) you're out there doing what you you want to do but when the fish don't bite fishermen understand you Mm. know and um but anyway so that client base we had were basically just a bunch of like-minded people in australia and gosh if i was to think of some of those people that did those trips like you know like and i'm wary to start dropping names because i'll forget people but a dozen or so people that are still very influential in fishing now were in another life doing something else and saving up to go fishing and, and realised they wanted to do the same, you know. Anyway, and like I said, lots of lots of people. But, yeah, it was a good time. It was a really good time. And the fishing was great. And we poked along rivers on that north coast of New Britain where we had the first camp on the Coolie River and had unbelievable lure fishing and uh, some fly fishing for black bass and spot tail bass and which are a great fish but you know as just to wrap that all up that remote untouched you know you can't read it in the book and nowadays you just google it i guess but no one knew anything about it you just had to go and have a look at it but were you guiding there or were you more hosting and arranging no no i was guiding i i had the second season i did on that first camp the Kulu river i was the guide i was the cook i was everything were the locals guiding too at that point well i had a couple yeah a couple of the locals and we're talking about pretty primitive people back then and yeah and um yeah but i had a couple of guys that had 
I'd spent time with me and I was happy to send them off on a boat. But, but you know, I think the way it worked, I'd had three boats, six anglers. I had fishing mates as well who could run a boat, but I'd have guides with them. And I'd run, I'd set off down the river each day and the three of us would go and the three boats would go and I'd basically say to my boys, this is where I want you to go, take these fellas fishing there. And so yeah, but I was, I was running everything there at, the, at that time in the first couple of years. So you got, you had something to do then with the fishery as it is today. Oh, I think I had a lot to do with it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, uh, well, the guys that are running those operations now up there are the people that I've met up there and, and, uh, yeah, no, it, it, the locations I fish aren't necessarily the ones they're fishing now, but, yeah, I, I have no doubt that, in fact, I know because I've talked to all of them about what they were doing. And in the end, the reason I stopped fishing in Papua New Guinea, and, and I was making a good living doing it, and uh, I really do want to, you know, and, some, and Peter Morse and Alan Phyllis Kirk, over the time up there, I had many good people around me that helped me do what I was doing up there, but in the end it wasn't safe. Yeah, um, and I had two young kids and a and a wife to look after, and in the end, from Queensland, and then getting full. Oh, I skipped around there a bit, but that time with Rod and John Hankey, and then sort of stepping out of the filming side of things, getting into the travel side of things, and and running the New Guinea stuff on my own as a separate thing altogether. We basically cut all ties. We were still. Uh, we were still friendly and we actually worked together and, and um, did some filming gigs at my locations, uh, of which I had quite a few in New Guinea over the years. And without skipping over lots of stuff, I got married, went to Cairns. I, I, I went from Queensland to Sydney and ran my sport fishing adventures company out of an office in Sydney in the middle of Clarence Street, Sydney, there with a company called uh, Sea New Guinea and New Guinea Tours, and I was a fishing side, and I was running these tours. Oh, so I've okay. had a proper travel agent, travel agency license tied up with these guys, and uh, and they had infrastructure that I could tap into. And it was we would take a lot of people fishing in New Guinea and setting up these camps to exploring new places. But that's where I met my wife. Ah, um, got it. And everything changes. Uh, she was actually a journalist for Penthouse magazine, and she she was the editor of Penthouse magazine. What, like the Penthouse magazine? Yep, yep. yep. Damn, I wish she was here right now. I think I'm gonna really like her. <laughs> yeah, she's a beauty. She is a beauty, and uh, but yeah, she was doing a story up there in New Guinea on the diving, and I was working out of that dive resort, and that's how we met. But well, what about being a decky? Were you a decky? I was. Yeah. Was that before New Guinea? No, that was during. And okay, again, the after. seasons are different. Yeah, well, New Guinea was a full-time gig Okay. for seven or eight years probably. I also was looking at the blue water fishing. I was fishing in rivers, mm-hmm. and uh, I had stuff on the land, on the shore, but after a couple of three seasons, the locals would start to get too familiar, and they'd know your comings and goings. And at the same time, there was Malaysian logging. You know, there were, I, for one couple of years there I thought well these guys must be following me around because everywhere I'll go I was looking for the remotest places I could mm-hmm. and I don't even want to think about the the couple of three times I saw wilderness ripped down in front of me while I was trying to fish these rivers and watch how it destroyed the the environment the rivers the reef the people it was terrible stuff but yeah so I, I had I had been marlin fishing as a crewman a lot of what the work I did with Rod in the early days was I was crewing at Lord Howe Island. I'd got I got jobs, you know, I'd go over and fish for a week with the charter operator there 
and then stay on for two weeks and work with them. And, ah. and one of the other things that happened way back then, which was a big thing for me, was one of the movies Ron Kelcup made. He's, I got a call when I was still in Melbourne, living at home, and he said, listen, do you want to come and... We're going to make a movie at Lord Owl and we'd like you to be a part of it. And that was, that was a really big part of my early days as well. But So I was... I was Training myself in that in that in that area as being a crewman on, on a fishing boat, having not really seen how it was meant to be done, and so that that was something I really enjoyed doing. I really enjoyed fishing for large fish, and but then the New Guinea thing was all encompassing for quite a few years, taking people in the rivers to fish for bass. And but while I was living in Queensland, there there were times when I'd get on the marlin fishing boats out of Brisbane and uh, fish off Cape Morton there in the early days. Okay, so that's the time. Okay, so your so uh, your early years are are Victoria, and yeah. then you go up to Queensland, which is where I start, where I began trying to make a living as as a full time in the fishing game. Yeah, and then you're going to you're doing your Papua New Guinea stuff and really pioneering that. So you're we, yeah pioneer pioneering it in as much that looking for new new places to fish, you know. Vic McChrystal and Rod Harrison really put the were the first guys to do it, and and I was I was in there behind him, and I took it to the next level by rather than just going up there to fish, just trying to produce a product that we could sell to other people to come up and do. So yeah, but yeah, I certainly that's what that's what we were doing, you know, what I was doing then. And also Marlon at the same time. That's how that I couldn't piece that together. Yeah, well, I yeah I had an interest in which came uh, first game fishing. So they were together. Pretty much, yeah. Well, yeah. No, well, in all honesty, the first serious fishing I ever did was game fishing. That was at Lord Howe Island with Rod. Right, got it. So then you're obviously really expanding, or you're growing as an angler. I moved to Sydney to to get into the travel, to, to continue the travel and do it properly through an office, and, and uh, it was it was pretty big business back then. Where do you go from Sydney? Well, a lot of stuff. You know, it's funny when I when I was thinking about all of this stuff. At the same time, I'm sitting there in the office and I've got, I've met people like Peter Morse through Rod Harrison and Gordon Dunlop. Yeah. And, um, and I was a little younger than those guys, so, and enthusiastic to learn all I could. But, you know, those early days there, I remember sitting in the office and we're talking about fly fishing. So that fly fishing thing is evolving there as well. And we're talking about trying to catch black bass on the fly rod. Gordon and Pete were doing, uh, yellowfin tuna trying to catch tunas and catching them you know but we were breaking stuff all the time and that's going on at the same time so and that interest that fly fishing interest carried over into pretty much everything where do you go from here well at, the, at that point in time it, with the new guinea stuff i'm doing my i'm creating another product as well the travel business is getting quite uh, quite successful i've got people like pete morse and and a little bit later on, Alan Phyllis Kirk, they're working with me as guides while I'm running things in the office, putting the stuff together. I'm taking photos while I'm away up there. I'm writing stories about it to get my phone to ring so I can talk talk to people who are interested in going up there. And then I'm, a, I'm up there establishing the product, which is building fishing camps and whatever it might be. I'm also doing the same thing in Fiji, game fishing. I didn't know that, okay. Uh, yeah, and, and the first organised fishing into Fiji. I'm promoting the Kimberley, Northern Territory. 
These are all serene places. At one point, are you battling with your own integrity saying, look, I really uh, want to have this place quiet because that's what gets me off, but here I yeah. am building a business. Yeah, on yeah well, that's a catch-22 for sure. But um, integrity is a good word because, you know, and I'm not going to say, mention, you can, you can take fishing photos and write fishing stories and you can, make stuff up to make your phone ring and then tell a lie over the phone to take someone's money and send them off on a fishing trip. I used to answer the phone, having taken the photo, having built the fishing camp, and when I talked to the client, I would be up there in the river taking them fishing. So the last thing I'm going to do is tell them to oversell any product. And I'd like to think that that's how I always did it. And, and you know, and years and years later with other other product where I was, uh, where I had lots of business and could have done a lot more, the fishing declined to such a point I couldn't take people fishing. Yeah. And I told them. Whereas, you know, I've had clients come to me from the States when I was running operations and not dealing with them direct and getting them having been sold by a third party and what they wanted and what I could give them were two different things. So that integrity in fishing travel doesn't necessarily, it isn't throughout the, throughout the industry these days, I don't think, and you've got to be careful, you know. Did you ever find a fishery that you just decided you wanted? Because, look, I'll, I'll skip back. I'll be honest with you. I've got a river in BC. Yeah. I could guide on it. I I can't. I can't. It's mine. You know what I mean? There's that in yeah. my head. It's mine. Yeah. Um, and if I do, you know, God forbid, run into even a single person in the last 10 years on it, I get really tight yeah, in the I chest about it. I get that. Yeah. Did well, you ever get that? Probably in hindsight. I never, I never thought that way early on because it was, you know, there were never giant numbers of people. I must admit, but, you know, in New Guinea, some of those rivers I fished in New Guinea, I knew all those fish by first name. And, yeah. uh, and as my business grew and I put more and more people onto these rivers and fished them on these rivers, the skill of the client went down, the pressure on the fish went up. No. So the fish got smart, the clients weren't smart, or they couldn't, they were smart, they just yeah. weren't great anglers. They wanted to do it, but. So I, you know, I, you know, and that's one of the reasons I walked away and, and changed locations and I couldn't give the people the fishing experience that they were expecting because their skill level wasn't great and the fish were getting smart. You had to be able to cast, you had to be able to cast well. You had to understand what was going on. But anyway, so I learned about things like that as we went, you know, that when you think there's thousands, there may only be hundreds and, and you need to be careful. But I do understand the point you're saying. Do I have a spot that I never, Never uh, kept all to myself, you know, or did I wish I'd ever done that, you know. No, I don't think so because sooner or later, the second you go into a river that's never been fished before, you change it forever anyway, you know. And I've seen that with uh, with tarpon fishing in Florida and and uh, nothing stays the same, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, you travel everywhere, so let's get to the next chapter then. Where do you go from here, what's your next step in your career? Um, well, yeah, with all, all of that stuff's evolving, and uh, basically, we had a little baby in Sydney. We lived in Paddington, Sydney. Corinne was just about done with her being a mum and 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 working. She was done with the magazine, so we moved to Cairns. And the reason we moved to Cairns was that it was a better plan. I wanted to move to Cairns. Yeah, uh, Corinne. 
she never liked it and we didn't stay there that long but it was close to New Guinea and I, I had a lot going on there in New Guinea and I thought well, it's an easy commute to work basically. Plus we had a little bug we didn't want to bring up in, in Paddington. From there New Guinea basically wrapped up. We had a second little boy so we've got a three year old and a new one, Reed and Zane. I was doing some stuff in the Northern Territory. I was, I was taking the mothership I was using in New Guinea to fish remote places in Australia, uh, the Wessels, the uh, uh, Arnhem Land and stuff, and we were doing barramundi and mackerels and all sorts of things, a lot of fly fishing, it was cool. But New Guinea was done. I had, a, I had, I had to give it away. It was just too dangerous. I, yeah. I didn't feel safe. I spent time negotiating with people that could easily have cut me into little pieces trying to get access to rivers and and again with the second kid on on the ground there and um and needing needing to be secure but not seeing any security left as far as trying to promote new guinea and at the same time trying to do the same thing in northern australia all of a sudden i realized geez they want permits this things, I've got to have life jackets and radios and all this stuff and wow, this is, and I looked at how much it would cost to set it up correctly for what was Australian requirements as opposed to what was the bush in New Guinea with no requirements and uh, it not being one for red tape liking it and for lots of reasons I basically bailed on that and and spent eight months in a fishing tackle shop in Cairns that would have been 94 I was still doing travel, a little bit of travel, and that was when we had Trey Coombs and his team came down and they fished in New Guinea and we marlin fished in Australia and it was the early days fly fishing for marlin and we caught his world record down in Townsville. And I was actually working in the tackle shop there, I think, you know, just to keep the money coming in. and With a broken heart, I'm sure. Well, yeah, but Corinne, as smart as she is, she I think it was eight months, it might have been longer, hey? we've been in Cairns a couple of years by then probably she hated the wet and the weather and so when do you start becoming a marlin guy because well, you're all right over there, Facebook right there is well she basically said get back to fishing or get out that was the call good that woman was the call. in uh, 1995 I'd heard of, I was up there and 94 95 and I heard about marlin fishing going off in Port Stevens now I'd never even heard of Port Stevens I didn't know where Port Stevens was and uh, I rang a friend of mine, uh, Glenn Booth, who was the editor of Modern Fishing Magazine at the time, and I said, tell me what's going on down there. There's lots of marlins. Myself, Alan Phyllis-Kirk, who's a really good mate and someone you need That's to talk fish, to. Fish, right? Fish. Yeah. Yeah, you need to get him on. He's on my list. He's a beauty. Fish. He'll, yeah, he's a beauty. We were trying to catch marlin on the fly, and the problem in Cairns was they were too big, you know, and we caught that one with Trey Coombs. Fish was a part of that. And uh, and a captain by the name of Sparrow, Craig Denham, uh, who is one of the guys that pioneered this stuff. We were young. We were looking at we were looking at ways to generate business, get clients, people on the boats. You know, still thinking like a travel agent and a fishing guide and all of that. And I said, well, everyone's marlin fishing up in Cairns. Every tackle marlin fishing. So and without our um, wanting to catch the biggest thing we could on a fly, that was one way of doing it, you know. We don't have tarpon in Australia, but we, you know, we've got a pretty good blue water fishery and, and catching big saltwater fish on the fly was what we were into. So I heard about these marlin biting down here and they were catching them on 80-pound tackle down here and they had just a phenomenal run of striped marlin in, in 94, 95. And I thought, well, I wouldn't, I'll try and catch one of those on fly. 
you know, so I, I dialed in on what was happening down here, and you know, people. You know, that's a whole that fishery. This fishery here is quite an interesting one, and one that's changed over the years, and unfortunately, probably had something to do with the way it's changed. But cut a long story short, I hooked up with a guy, Glenn Booth, put me in contact with a fellow by the name of Graham McCloy, businessman from New, Newcastle, had a boat, and. Uh, and was out there catching lots and lots of marlin on heavy tackle. And I rang him up and said, you don't know me, my name's Dean Butler, but I hear you're whacking the marlins pretty good down there. I'd like to come down and catch one on fly. And Graham, he's a beauty, he's a great guy. He just laughed and he said, well, I'd like to see that. <laughs> so I planned from the tackle shop. I was working there in Cairns. We, I hooked up to fish with him, set some dates. He rang me a week before. He said, you know what, they're gone. Don't come, it'd be a waste of time. Oh. And then they came on again. He said, oh, there are. I said, well, let's make it a next month. And so anyway, the date changed three or four times. And on the last change, the, you know, and I, I learned years later that, yeah, sure, the fishing goes like that during the season, you know, and if you're here at the right time, beauty. If you're not, you miss out. But he said, they're gone, don't bother coming. I said, you know what? I don't care, I'm going to come anyway because I'm happy to anything to get out of here, out of cans and out of the tackle shop. So I come down, meet this guy that we met before, we get on like a house on fire, we go out fishing on the first day, on the Saturday, uh, this is 1996 I think, no, 95. Nothing by midday, we haven't seen a fish, the water's green, he said, oh yeah, well, well, I said, no big deal, he said, let's have a beer, so he breaks out some beers, so we're drinking beers and I think at one o'clock, we get a bite off striped marlin, and I got used to this. But over the years, like teaser rods and teaser baits and all this stuff, this is stuff that I pretty much developed uh, working with fish and other guys. But I had custom-built teaser poles that had no guides, and I get onto a boat filled with marlin fishermen or shark fishermen, which are even worse. I've got <laughs> no idea about all they've ever done is saltwater game fish for with heavy tackle for marlin sharks and I'm saying well we've got these long rods and we're going to tie teaser baits on them we're going to sew all these mullets up and that and then when the marlin comes we're going to pull everything away and try and get the marlin at the back of the boat pull the teaser out and then I'm going to throw this thing at it and, uh, and then we get him on and then we're going to try and catch him and they're just looking at me like I'm mental and this happened a lot over 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 the years. But, but these are fly fishermen, obviously. No, no. I'm is the only it... fly fisherman. There isn't a fly fisherman within 50 miles of me. Oh, my there God. There isn't a fly fisherman within 500 miles of me at this point in time. These guys have no idea. On this trip that you're on, though, at this point, had you already caught one on the fly? I'd caught uh, little black marlin. Okay, got it. Little black marlins. But no one had ever caught a striped marlin in Australia on a fly. Oh, right? cool. Okay. And these guys had done a lot of marlin fish, but they'd never even seen a fly rod, you know, and the differences which... Uh, talk about IGFA requirements and all that stuff. They, they've got no idea, and they're all pretty much laughing at me, really. But we're getting on okay and having a few beers, and because we don't think we're going to see anything, and they yeah. definitely don't think we're going to catch anything. And I've carried down everything: teaser rods, gaffs, tackle, flies, the whole lot. I'm like, you couldn't do it nowadays, travelling the way I used to with all this stuff. But anyway, we're set up there, and boom, there's a marlin. And uh, it eats the a striped marlin, fantastic uh, thing to see. I think you've seen them, haven't you? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're ruining they're, my life. They're pretty wild. But when well, it comes in, it eats the teas. It doesn't look real hot. And I'm saying, wind the mullet in, wind the mullet in, wind the mullet in. Fish comes in, 
goes all brown, swims away. And ah. the boys are, why didn't you cast out? Why didn't I said, it wasn't hot. The fish wasn't good to go. He said, that's the hottest marlin I've ever seen. He was right here. Normally they get the bite on the lure. And it happens all way behind the boat. They never see anything like that before in their lives. So anyway, they're looking at me more strange. And I said, well, geez, that was pretty hot for me. So we'd seen the fish and we go, and it's about one o'clock. So we've seen one marlin. We go around again and here comes another one. This one crashes the teaser bait. And it's lit up. It's just the colours. I can't even begin to describe the colours that you know you see when a striped marlin's doing its thing. And it's got all its face and dorsal out of the water and it's chewing on the thing and the pole's been over and the guy's trying to crank it in. I'm yelling, get it in, get it in, get it in. He gets it in, you know, pretty rough old tease, but the marlin's looking for something to eat. I throw the fly in. The marlin ties himself in a knot to eat the fly. I go to strike and I get him on, but the fish swims towards the boat and I'm a, and part of the plan was, Graham, when we get the bite... He's, Shut that boat off. Well, get the boat moving forward when I hook the fish. You've got to go to neutral and do all the things. But when once that's all happened, get the boat back in gear so I, we can get a little bit of distance and clear the line and that. And I've got him on, got him on, got him on, and then I've got him off. I haven't been able to come tight to the ah. fish. But it's all happened right there. Yeah. And I look up at Graham and I say, I was about to say, why didn't you drive forward? And he's hanging over the side. Watching everything. He goes, I can't believe it ate. I can't believe it ate the fly. <laughs> anyway. Because uh, he's just as important as you are. I mean, you guys There's a lot team. of things. Yeah, well, we're certainly not a team, but we're just a bunch of blokes have been thrown together, but we're learning <laughs> quick. Anyway, that was that was just after one o'clock, so we've seen two fish from none to two pretty quick. In the next hour or next 45 minutes, well, I think we saw 16. What? And this was the day that he said don't come? Well, he, yeah, he thought they'd gone, but they'd come back. Awesome. Oh. And uh, I hooked four or five, broke them off every way you can, you know, hooked around the rod, jumped off. Uh, hooked around the rod holders. I swear Murphy's Law was because of marlin fishing. Honestly, I mean, I have been out enough times now to be certifiably insane. Oh, well. And yeah. everything that has been able to go wrong has gone wrong. Yeah. Not even that long ago, I was, we were just out of the harbor. Yeah. And had a beautiful fish come up, beautiful marlin came up, and I had been cold. I just wrapped myself in my sarong. I got tangled in my sarong. <sighs> I couldn't, that happen. couldn't pull the daisy chain. Charles is a teaser. He's screaming at me, and I can't get to the chain. And it's same thing. It just loses interest and it's gone. I mean, yeah. everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> so, so how? What? What happens after this? Then, so you have your trip. You obviously. Well, what happened that day is I caught one. You did catch I one. I caught one in the boat, and it was a world record. <gasps> no way. It was uh, 90, 90 and a half kilos on ten kilo. But anyway, I caught a world record, and I had. Gone into it, expecting to catch one, if it was as good as I knew I could, but it was early days and no one really knew if it could be done or not. And it, and the fish was quite a lot bigger than the world record. And all my stuff was good, my leader lengths and all of that. And, um, yeah, so Saturday afternoon, here we are. All of a sudden, all these guys said, well, shit, we did catch one. It can be done. They went and got so drunk that night that they didn't show up the next day. Oh, That's another story. But, um, yeah, so I caught a world record striped marlin on the fly and uh, went out the next day and fished 16-pound, 8-kilo tippet and caught another fish 
and it turned out it wasn't big enough for a world, but it was an Australian record. What I saw was an unbelievable fishery. I saw that I didn't know about, and no one really knew about it. Just the like, you know, we don't have all this stuff, you know, Facebook and blah blah blah. Yeah, it was it was ninety five, ninety six. So I went home, and I said to my wife, "Let's go and live in Port Stephens." And she goes, "Well, anywhere's better than Cairns." This is a great compromise. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's what we did. We basically wound up everything there, packed the tinny that I had up there, one of my New Guinea tinnies, and filled it up with stuff and put two kids and everything we owned, sold our house and came down here uh, because I saw the potential for a fishery, for a fly fishery here, you know, and that was that was how that began. And I was working with my buddy Sparrow. We, uh, uh, you know, the standard formula, well, we added world records to the standard formula, take pictures, write stories, promote the destination, set it up and make sure that it works properly so that guests can come down and, and, and have a fishing holiday. How long did it take you to become the guy? Because you are, you can, I don't know if you, but you know this, you're the guy. For that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To yeah. this day, people, yeah. Dean Butler is the guy. Well, those two fish I caught here, and, you know, I'd caught dogtooth tuna on the fly, the first dogtooth on the fly, so we've been doing it for a while, and, you know, there's a lot of people that I used to, hang out with that we used to work towards these various goals but in the end it was it became my specific gig i suppose coming up dean and i dive into the igfa philosophy as well as conservation efforts that may or may not be taking place in the saltwater world again a major thank you to rio products i've been using rio lines exclusively since my early days as a fly fisher and i've never been let down by them a difference between rio and other line companies is that Rio actively employs people who are passionate fly fishers. This ensures a constant stream of ideas and opportunities to test, tweak, and refine products to make sure they are the very best off-the-shelf lines an angler can buy. Please visit their social media pages to thank them for their support or visit their website at www.rioproducts.com. Along the way, world records would, you know, we were breaking world records left, right, and centre, and... and we got really, really good at it. And not just in Australia. Well, no. It started here and then, you know, well, there was different locations. There's always somewhere to go and catch world record or go and catch marlins and, and big pelagic fish. So I was working in, in Vanuatu. Uh, I did trips to the Solomons. I did some trips back to New Guinea. And I did trips uh, Costa Rica. And, uh, yeah, and, and along the way, putting all these fish in the, in the book, in the IGFA book, and... Developing techniques and tackle and 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 teaser setups and all sorts of things and yeah I became well okay. known as a guy and I had a lot of clients that wanted to do it and you know and it's fly as you know fly fishing for mile you don't get on a party boat and say well okay when everyone's caught one on conventional tackle I'll just fly fish for them mm-hmm. it's a fairly singular focus and uh, you know so my clients. Would come to most of my guys would fish five or seven days, had the whole boat to themselves at twenty five hundred bucks a day. So it was mm-hmm. major business, I thought anyway. I think it is, you know, for, to have one guy stand there for seven days paying that money to get shots at what is a really hard fish to catch on a fly. Yeah. So yeah, I had a good client base of, of people, that, and it's like 
I'm sure you know, you know, these some of these guys would do this and then they go and sit in a fancy camp in Alaska or a fancy lodge and then they go bone fishing here and mm-hmm. they keep bumping into each other along the way. Oh, yeah. have you caught a marlin yet? No. <laughs> but uh, again, skill levels might have gone down a little as, as I, I promoted it more and the fishery wasn't as healthy, so there was less shots and in, in the end, long story short, uh, in the end... Uh, by, and it didn't last very long, really, but um, we had to go further afield to get the sort of bites you wanted and mm-hmm. the clients. And I guess the other thing that was happening, we were putting the records up. It's pretty easy to catch a 150-pound strike mile on a fly rod. Yeah, but now you've got to keep going above and beyond. Some of the, guys that, the serious guys were the guys that wanted to break record because a lot of the clients in the early days just caught a record as a bonus whilst they were fishing for fun, you know, with right. us because all our stuff was IGFA all the time, legal. And I saw enough marlin caught IGFA legal to know you don't have to fish heavy tippets and long shocks and all that crap. You don't have to do it. You just have to know how to do it properly, which is a part of the sport as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, the, the, the fishery slowed down here. Uh, 2001, 2002, there was 100 boats out there, whereas when we started, there was none. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of live bait going on, and, I, you know, that history is easy to dig up, and, and it's not, it's only, we're talking 15 years ago now, but changed quick. Yeah. And uh, but the bottom line was I couldn't, um, I couldn't guarantee people are going to get bites or if we were going to raise enough fish for them to get a chance to catch a fish on a fly rod. And, and it's so much pressure, too, because people who have not been marlin fishing before, especially in a big boat with the crew, you know, got two deckhands. When I was saying deckies, I'm talking about deckhands and yeah, captain. Yeah, and cool. In my mind, you're only as good as your crew. I mean, you can be a great fly fisher, but and I understand I hear the sigh, I know, I know, I know. Oh, no, no, you're right. It, but I don't think people realize how much pressure is on you guys because I'm a guy I mean I've guided for well I'd like to think the pressure's on the angler well it should be right but I've had tons of piss poor clients be like oh well maybe you haven't taken me to the right spot no I put you in the right spot you can't cast past the length of your arm you know so well that's that's come what I said earlier you know you want to be taking fishermen fishing and Mm -hmm. um, and to tell you the truth like where it's at now for us, and where if you're fishing IGFA, and, and that's what we're, we're doing now, and well, I'm sure we'll talk about Tom, but it's not that difficult to catch a 150-pound strike marlin on a fly rod. It's not that difficult to catch a 100-pound black marlin on a fly rod. The trick is putting yourself somewhere where you can get enough bites to do it and trying to pull it off in one day. It's really tough, you know, so yeah. so there's that, but... And a strike mile, 150 pounds, 70 kilo fish, 80 kilo, which 70 kilos your average out here most of the time, it used to be. You get seven or eight shots at that fish a day, you'll stick him and, and if you've got angling, any angling skills, uh, you'll catch the fish with the help of the crew in the boat. But beyond that, any marlin bigger than that, I really think is it's a stupid way to try and catch them using a fly rod. It really is. I think, I think it's ridiculous. But there's enough people, and certainly one in particular, that wants to do it. And it's definitely a team effort, you know, um, to use the boat. And, and, uh, and, yeah, but there's a lot of way. It's the stupidest way to catch a marlin over 150 pounds with a fly rod. That's that's pretty much what I think, and that was the side because... 
I'd love to fish somewhere where I could get ten bites a day at hundred at seventy kilo strike marlins, mm-hmm. and I used to be used to be right out the front here, but it's not here anymore. Right, damn it. Well, let's, let's. And it can be there, and it has been good, but whereas it might have been good for thirty days, now it might be good for three, and there'll be a hundred boats messing with them, you know. So, and then they wear that pot of fish out, and then you got to wait for a fresh run of fish, and if that fresh run of fish comes when you're not out there, by the time you hear about it, they're done too. Oh, that's a really good point. So you can sore mouth a whole pot of fish. Oh, I think, I, I, I believe, without, I'm not a scientist, but I've seen 400 marlin caught out there in one day. Oh, my God, that's insane. Because uh, they're, they're coming in with the currents, is that what they come in to eat the bait that comes in here. Okay. And, and I've seen the way the bait's changed over the years. It's happier than it used to be. It's not as well controlled as it used to be when they had a lot of striped marlin on it. Now it's just acres of untidy bait everywhere because there's no marlin. You mean they're not balling up? Well, there's not enough marlin. There's more. It's an imbalanced environment out there. Then longliners whack the marlin so good there in the late nineties that they changed the way it worked out there. And then you put a lot of boats that would, with with technology and sounders and evolving, and you know you could mark a ball of bait that had striped marlin on it, and you could drop a livey down with a sinker and catch that fish before it's done its thing and pushed the bait to the surface so people fishing with teasers just never get to see them day in day out which is you know and people say oh it was great we caught eight but yeah you caught them with sinkers on the bottom fishing so things have changed and but yeah i wish it i wish it was a 10 bite a day 70 kilo strike island fishery and it would be if they weren't live baiting them out there but that's gone well let me talk to you about tom evans Tom was recently inducted. The IGFA, a lot of your people won't know about the IGFA. A lot of my people don't even know about marlin. Okay. Yeah, well, and to those people, marlin are a really stupid fish to try and catch on a fly rod. They really are. (laughs) But um, if you get the chance to do it in the right spot, the right time with the right crew, it's pretty cool, you know, but it's not that easy to put together. But (laughs) I first met Tom... Well, actually, what happened was I was off fishing somewhere else. So I, I had my Port Stephens fishing season. Then I, I had a Vanuatu fishing season, and we would fly fish for wahoos, which is a really cool fish to catch on a fly rod because they are fast and electric and light up like a strike marlin. They jump to eat the fly sometimes. They'll, nothing pulls as hard as a wahoo and makes a real spin as fast as a wahoo, a fly reel spin as fast as these guys. And then... They're not that tough a fish for your average angler to wind in and pick up a seven-foot long thing and say, wow, look at that, <laughs> especially for a trout fisherman or someone like that. But Corinne took a phone call in the year 2000. I'd, she was the worst phone message taker in the world. I'd come back to scribbles and bits of paper and some things I never found out about, but there was one message when I got and I, I thought when I saw this message, well, at least this is where it should be and it makes sense. Well, so she's listening. And it said, a gentleman from the States called Tom Evans called. And he's a famous... Well, he's famous for catching big tarpon. Got it. But he wasn't a promoter. Like, Billy Pate was famous for catching big tarpon, although Billy never caught as big a tarpon as, as Tom did. And uh, it was never anywhere near the fisherman Tom was. But no one wants to hear that. But anyway, yes, I get this note. Tom Evans from the States called, and she wrote, sounds like a big fish. That's what she wrote. And so I ring this guy up, and, and there's Tom on the other end of the phone. How do you do, Tom? Oh, I've got this message to call you. You want to come down marlin fishing? He said, yeah. And uh, he's telling, he just caught a potential world record tarpon on 12-pound test, which I think 
was 180 pound. I can't remember. It might have been 181 or something like that. It was a big poon on, on 12 pound test. And he'd, a week earlier, found out that the line tested over by the IGFA. So he's gone, to, you know, and he's telling me about this, this. And to me at that time, to catch a tarpon was what I wanted to do more than anything in the world. So I'm talking to a guy that's catching world record tarpon, the biggest ever, and, and didn't really, hadn't ever really heard of him because it was always about the other guy. But uh, then I looked in the book and I saw that he'd had a few records. And anyway, I'm, I'm just talking to a potential customer. For, and the fishing was getting pretty dodgy, pretty slow then, and I didn't see it last them forever, but I needed and wanted to do do at least one more season here and with no real plan to do anything else. But So I said, yeah, we can we can certainly do that. We've caught quite a few fish, world records, and, and on a good day you see this many. And I was talking to him and uh, telling him the truth, and he understood what I, he understood that I understood what was going on. I said, yeah, well, let us, what do you want to do? How many days would you like to come down? Most guys, you know, you're going to need at least five or seven days. And he says, I'll do 30. No. And it's like over 2,000 bucks a day. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, <gasps> big fish was a big fish. And so <laughs> I had to rejig my season quite a bit to fit him in. And um, the 2001, he came down. We fished 30 days, caught one. And it wasn't big enough. It blew 20 to 30 most days and fishing was bad. The weather was worse. But what happened was that for the first time had been trying to catch a marlin in Costa Rica for five years prior to this. Ah. And he was the only guy on the boat. He was like me when I came down and fished with Graham. He was the only guy on the boat that knew anything about fly fishing. And he wasn't in it. And Tom being the sort of person Tom is, he pays people that are good at what they do. He's not about to tell them how to do it. So he just sat there in his own little fly fishing bubble on the boat in Costa Rica and didn't catch any marlin. He had them on and they broke his shit, they broke his everything, and, and or then he didn't have crewmen committed to taking them right at the end in a million ways, how, as you know, how not to catch them. But he, he, his wife, who's really smart, said, you're never going to catch a fish down there. So he started looking around, and that's how he ended up calling me. He found out that there was people down there catching them. So that's how he came about. So I was already dialed in on the IGFA thing. It was all had to be IGFA because we didn't know what we were going to hook the next day. We wouldn't, didn't want to catch a fish and it not be legal. And so Tom worked out in about five minutes. Oh, hang on, this Dean Butler knows fly fishing. He all, he calls them, he calls conventional tackle game fishing diesel people. He said, this guy understands diesel fishing, <laughs> but he also understands fly fishing because the stuff that we were doing with our backings and all this stuff, he was sort of working towards it as well, but he didn't have, he's, he, he doesn't get out about, you know, he keeps to himself. He, he was nutting it out and his stuff was pretty good, but the first thing I did was took his reels and pulled all the dacron back and off and put braid backing on. I said, we need this for that. Those fly lines are too thick, we're going to use these. And he, you know, because he, Fish with some of the best tarpon guides in the world. He's been well trained to do as he's told as far as the fishing guide goes. And uh, so the first year we caught one 100-pound black marlin. It wasn't even close to the world record that I'd caught a couple of years earlier with someone else. But he said, I'll come back next year and I'd like to employ you to come to Costa Rica where I've been fishing and I'll set up a deal with this mob that I've been fishing with or a new a new operation and you can be my guide. And I said, no worries. That didn't work out so well. We fished 21 days. That's 2001 it was. And had quite a few blue marlin bites. And the blue marlin was, 
thing that I really wanted to catch because I caught blacks in the stripes and we'd been smashed by them out here. But anyway, we didn't catch one there. We had one on 12 pound, but there was a bit of a... The skipper had one idea and Tom had another and I was in the middle trying to be diplomatic to yeah. keep everything going. But anyway, <laughs> it did, nothing good happened. So he fished again in 2002 and I think we caught two. Oh, I can't remember now. I'd have to look at the books. But he... He, we caught two fish. We caught a, the world's biggest striped marlin fly rod. Oh, actually, I was on 16-pound tippet. It was uh, eight kilo tippet. It was 104 kilos. So that's like two thirty-five yeah, or something. Times two point two. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a great fish. And then we caught a blue marlin on the same gig uh, on the last day. That was 289. Pounds. I mean, they get over a thousand pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Blue marlin do. Yeah. But we're not fishing for we, that's that's a tricky bit about fly fishing for marlin. You want to be and why cans never worked out to be a good place to do black marlin fishing because you might raise a hundred and fifty pounder or you might raise eleven hundred and fifty pounder. Yeah, you're just wasting your time. So Tom, yeah, so Tom caught a two hundred eighty nine pound blue marlin, which is still the largest billfish ever caught on a fly rod on twenty pound ten kilo tippet. A pretty big deal uh, for him and for us, the crew. And so he caught two records. He's got nine now. So basically... All with you? Yeah. So he loves tarpon fishing. Tarpon's different to marlin. You fish for tarpon? Yeah, yeah, it's totally different. Tom's really good at that. And Tom, if Tom was known for anything and or he's very niche, especially, is he knows how to pull on a fish. He knows he can... When he gets in a fight with a fish... And a tarpon in particular, he can whip a tarpon in 10 minutes. And that's what I want to ask him, because my argument has always been, well, and, and I won't do this to you now. I want to ask is, you know, I know that Tom believes that you're not really being fair. I think you believe the same thing, unless you're fishing by IGFA okay, standards. Yeah. And I always wonder, well, aren't you overplaying the fish for too long? No, no, that's, so that's, that's incorrect. Okay. Tom can catch, uh, you know... I could spend an hour talking about this. I know. <laughs> and um, it's a fallacy to think that lighter line is worse than heavier line. Now, and it's, it, you know, let's talk about tarpon for a moment. Well, I was in Cuba last year and I was fishing with a bunch of guys and um, talking about rules. I said, rules? Are there rules? I said, what, you've never heard of the IGFA and, and how you can build a tippet and how, you know, there are certain things you do if you want to uh, fly fish IGFA and the way fly fishing should be done. And they said, what are you talking about? So to try and get my point across here now, Tom and certainly myself, and I know that like Peter Morse, he'll tell you the same thing. He's got his name in the book there somewhere. And I, and I'm, I know there's some species of fish in some locations where you, you can't do it, you're wasting time, you may as well use a plug rod. But the biggest thing is about tradition. You know, fly fishing for trout, and then if you know anything about the history, people wanted to catch saltwater fish on fly, so they took their trout tackle and they, st- you know, and things like bonefish and the stuff became targets. And whilst looking for bonefish, there was tarpon to be caught, but you couldn't do that, so you needed to put a bite tip it in there. So Lefty Lefty wrote the rules for fly fishing back in the fifties, and and what those rules are and. and they are a part of the history. They are a part of the tradition. And what's because people don't know about it, don't get educated along those lines, we're losing that history and that tradition. And I think by playing by the rules is, is a way of 
keeping the history there so people understand that, okay, yeah, it's, you know, you've got to make a nice cast, you need to use a fly line. To do that, you need to present the light fly, but that, that little bit, the tippet, and the fact that, you know, the, the, that idea of failure requirement, that part of the requirement, that's, you know, testing yourself against a big fish. Tom's world record tarpon on 12 pound now, the one he missed when I first met him, the line broke over, he's got that in the book now, it's 194 and a half pounds on 12 pound tippet. That's insane. He's got a big one, 190 on 16 pound, but he's caught those fish quicker because he knows knows the fish and he's used skills that have been created by years of fishing idea to get better at it, uh, that he, he knows how to work the fish. And he knows how to when to pull and when not to pull. He knows how much to pull without breaking his line. These are all angling skills that seem to be disappearing. They they really do, you know. Oh, you know, I, I can pull as hard as I want. I've got rods that, you know, there's fly lines now with 95-pound uh, cores. So you can fish 60-pound to catch a GT. I get that, and, I, I, you know, I understand the thrill of the pull and all of that, but I think if I was going to go GT fishing, I'd fish 20-pound IDFA legal because I want to pull as hard as I can without breaking my line and still try and catch the fish. We've caught 289-pound marlin on that stuff, you know. It can be done. Well, the big elephant in the room is, do you have to hang them? I mean, all those years of having to hang the fish, that's what's always deterred me is hanging. Well, in the perfect world where you're getting 10 shots a day at 150-pound striped marlins and throwing your fly at them, or you go to do the sailfish thing, and a sailfish is not a marlin. It's a really easy fish to catch on a fly rod. But um, Marlin practice. Yeah, they are good marlin practice, but I'll tell you what, they're not... As fast and not as strong, they don't have the stamina. It's not you, you, they're not that tough. It's good. I don't, I, I think the best thing about it is if you haven't done much of it. And I remember my first sailfish on a fly rod up in Papua New Guinea, that was a that was a great day. But, um, yeah, getting getting you know, if your knees aren't knocking when you're throwing your fly at something behind the back of the boat, you, you've done it too often. And I'll guarantee you that the next one I see will make my knees knock. Mm-hmm. You know, and if I'm in a in a in a good place with a good bite, you'll chill out and just get zoned in to get the job done. But yeah, if if my hands aren't shaking after the first encounter every day, I'll give it away, and I do. You know, so that's... the first marlin that came up after my sailfish trip in Guatemala, I was so used to these slow sailfish. I mean, you have all the time in the world yeah. when they come up, yeah. and the marlin, everything just happened so fast. It was so much more aggressive. It was... Oh, it's a, they're a different creature. They are ruining my life, but that's another day. So. Well, I hope we can get, you know, like, <laughs> lucky we didn't try and fish today. Yeah? Oh, it's miserable out there right now. Terrible. Yeah. But, um, so, the hanging thing. So, what you're saying that Oh, was, okay. Yeah. So, well, I've made a living killing marlin the last uh, 15 years, but I've... I, We've killed a handful, you know, a couple of handfuls to to keep the customer happy and, and to to pursue putting fish in the book. And I know most people don't get that, don't respect it, don't they think it's a bad thing. But you know, at the end of the day, um, one long line would take eighty mile and one hit, you know, and they're all done. One, one, oh, a long one line. long line boat can take 80 in a night's fishing out well, the front here. They don't do it anymore because the fishing's not that good. But. I mean, the argument I always have when I run into people who say, oh, my God, do you fish, you know, don't you feel guilty? And I say, well, no, because by being an angler, we get to promote all these other people into the outdoors yeah. and they fight yeah. for the environment. So is that where you stand? I, I'm, 
I've let more fish go than most. Right. I totally understand and are all for correct conservation measures that help help save habitats and environments. You know, I think I could. There's another hour's worth of talking about so-called conservation organisations that do fuck all mm-hmm. towards really saving anything and uh, justifying their own existence. When, you know, I might be out on the water for 70 days in a row with no scientific background whatsoever, but with a with enough brains to have observed things where I think people should listen and act quickly, and uh, many, many good fishing mates of mine around the world do the same thing, but they're not scientists, they haven't been trained, they're not going to get grants to save the world, so they don't get listened to, you know, and uh, it's... It's frustrating to get into conversations with people that have only been fishing 10 years or 15 years or even I can tell how long someone's been fishing based on their philosophies and what they're trying to jam down my throat. You know, you, you know uh, nothing beats experience and the longer you do things, the more you see. And they say that, you know, I'm a grumpy old man pretty much nowadays because I'm sick of having to be polite to people that don't know what they're talking about. So... Uh, uh, and it's easy just to say nothing. And I, as a younger man, I've got myself in plenty of trouble saying what I think. But in trying to keep and answer the question, killing the odd marlin is not hurting. And to do it on a fly rod, if every fish that gets killed in the world was killed on a fly rod, there'd be a lot of fish of any species. Mm. So we're not doing too much damage with our fly rod. And when a man like Tom Evans can spend 30 days to kill one, and the amount of, you know, the old story, how much money do you spend on accommodation, fuel, booze, blah, 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 goes on and on and on. And if Tom's Tom's probably killed a few dozen, maybe more marlins with us, but he hasn't done any harm. It's helped a lot of people along the way. And, and if, uh, you know, in that particular environment, if fisheries around the world purely... Uh, were utilised by sports fishermen and fly fishermen and there was no commercial fishing, they'd be um, pretty good, there'd be good fisheries all around the world. So I like to eat fish and when I, we don't eat fish we catch on a fly because we beat them up too much normally for them to be any good but I'm happy to take any tackle I can to catch something to eat and will do all the time. I think most people are like that but... I don't know who's got the right to say, well, you can kill a snapper, but you can't kill a marlin. You can you use 50 slimies to catch one marlin and you can kill all of them, but you're not allowed to, you know, don't tell me what to do. I'm, it's legal. I'm going to kill a marlin. And if we hang it up and get our picture taken next to it and it goes in a book that uh, a handful of fishermen around the world are interested in, I'm sweet with that. You don't have to hang them anymore, do you? No, you don't. <clears throat> well, you, if you're going to... You, Submit a world record marlin, you have to kill it because you can't you can't take a marlin, a eight foot long thing with a big sword on the end of its nose, and weigh it alive, and then let it put it back in the water. It'll kill you. Yeah, yeah, no doubt it will. So in that in the happy world that we talk about, where you get ten bites a day and a hundred and fifty pound strike marlin, you don't have to kill those fish. You shouldn't kill those fish. You'll get them alongside the boat. You can beat them up good enough. And quickly enough to grab them by the bill, take the fly out, have your picture taken with it, and let them go. In the water. In the water. Yeah. 
Uh, which organization do you think is doing the best work right now for Marlin? Um, well, no one really, probably. There's the Billfish Foundation. They have done some things and they'll promote what they've done and you, you can read about all they've done, but uh, I don't think any of them are doing much good. And I think the IGFA it calls itself a, a conservation organisation. I think they should stick with keeping the records and uh, and let and and separate that because uh, it, it, from what I can see, and I've been involved a little bit with the Bonefish Tarpon Trust, and there's a lot of bad things happening over there at the moment, and. You've got scientists talking about how a bonefish goes from the Bahamas to the Florida Keys and they're taking fin samples and they're working all this stuff out. But at the same time, the, you know, the Florida Bay is getting smashed by the sugarcane industry there and, and that's just the worst thing in the world, what's going on there. And then you look at what's happening with the tarpon and three to 5,000 tarpons get sharked every year at Boca Grande. And oh, I didn't know it was that many. Oh, there's lots. Lots and and it, probably more, but you know I remember sitting there with Tom. We we're a few hours north of there, trying to catch tarpon that weren't coming. There was none there, and the guy rang and said he fished in the morning, tied with four clients, caught nine, eight of them got eaten by sharks. No way. And then he was heading out in the afternoon. He caught another seven, all of which got eaten by sharks. Oh, I had no idea. And they video it, and the guides are saying, "Well, look at this! Oh, this is this is the wilderness. This is just nature, Mother Nature taking its course." And there's a tethered fish to a fifty-pound fishing rod, getting chewed by a shark, or getting beat up on heavy tackle and dragged around for hours, and then let go, and the sharks are eating. Yeah, no, it's it's a bad thing. And for a month or two a year, that happens. That can't be good. Um, no doubt, no. Tom Evans is allowed to kill one tarp in a year. This is how they're saving the world up there. Let's restrict. You're, you've got to buy tarpon tags. And you're only allowed to kill one tarpon a year. You use your tag, you're done for the year with his fly rod and all that's going on. And they've, they've tried to change it. Or they said we've saved and we've changed the way we rig our jigs. And, but none of that's true. And, and they're doing nothing. Everyone, you know, it's cool to want to save the world and we should save the world. But I think... You got to be realistic if if uh, some things can actually be done. You know, if it involves a lot of money and and economies revolve around various things like sports fishing for tarpon in Florida, it's going to be hard to change anything and make it right. You know, one of the things I would like to say about that is that we're over regimented here in Australia in a lot of ways. With you know, there's some good things about uh, sanctuaries and stuff, but green zones and pink zones, I'm not up to speed on it. But they you know, they're Closing areas and, and some of that's really good and they've stopped netting in various rivers, some of that's good, but there's the science behind a lot of the decisions they make don't, don't really make sense on paper. When you talk to the, 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 the scientists and the organisers and the presidents of these companies that have got to generate cash and do things to keep the doors open, you know, justify their existence, you know, I've heard them, I've heard them say, oh, well, you know, we can't do that. There's too much money involved. We can't. We can't. That fishing guide needs to make a living. That, you know, but if that fishing guide got a little bit better at his job and learned how to catch them on proper tackle and fly fishing tackle and IGFA 
legal tackle. He'd be better at his job. His clients said, you know, it's all about education. And I, I, what's happening, what's happened over the years is it's all about the numbers. It's, you know, like it's certainly all about the money in that sort of environment and most reasons that, but a conservation company butts up against this sort of stuff and they just lay down. They'll make something up that makes them look like they're doing it, but they're not doing anything. And, um, unfortunately I've watched this happen over, over 15, 20 years and just starting to look at it more closely on the internet and all of that and seeing what's happened. People, they think they're doing the right thing. They think they're a conservationist, but, you know, they, they're fishing for the wrong reasons. A lot of people I see and it's all about numbers. It's all about putting a post up on the computer and, and sure, they're letting fish go, but the masses... Most fish aren't that tough to catch. You can catch them pretty easy, let them go when everyone's happy. You know, when you start pitting yourself against bigger sports fish, you need to be better at it. And I see that side of the game going away pretty quickly. And that's a bit of a shame. Shame for me because, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I want to find the people that do want to fish IGFA legal and want to and pit themselves against things that will actually hurt them if they don't do the thing the job properly is is a bit of a concern but are you available for hire to the regular person yeah sure i thought yeah. you were basically owned by tom evans oh well i know i'm not owned by anyone but um <laughs> i if someone contacted me and said and then there's no one out there's not no one wants to do it anyway i want to catch world record marlin i'm not available Who, you're not available i'm not available to take someone as a fishing guide to go World record marlin fishing because I'm loyal to Tom, and is I'm not going. We've I know how much time, effort, and money has gone into catching the fish that he has in the book, and I'm certainly not about to try and catch, try and beat those. And our goal is to make them to a point where they are unbeatable. And when Tom's done, I'm done in regard to record fishing for marlins. We're currently setting up our next trip is fishing for tarpon on eight pound tippet. But yeah, no, I, I still take people fishing for, I'm happy to go, I want to take you marlin fishing. And most people don't want to kill them, that's fine. They'll, if they fish with me, they'll have to fish IGFA legal because I know it can be done. I can teach people how to, how to get through what they think's an impossible task. It's not. It's, it's just a stupid mindset to think that you can't do it when it's already been done. Um, yeah, and I've got some exploratory stuff. I'm going to do some more stuff in New Guinea, so some fly fishing, flats fishing up there. So we've got a few things going. But, yeah, I'm certainly open for business in that department. All right. Well, I'm happy I asked. So, yeah. really, I mean, as an empty nester, and 54, you're still really young. Yeah. This well, is kind of like a revival. I mean, you're about to take a – I feel like you're about to oh, um, the, have a new chapter. Yeah, there's a new chapter. Well, I hope so. Otherwise, I'm you know, I'll be very sad. But I look at what I've done in the past and how – I'm not much of a planner. I've sort of just diversified and wriggled around in the right direction to keep paying the bills and looking after my family, which um, I think I've done and been lucky enough to have, I'm going to say this now before we roll it up, that without Corinne supporting me all the way, I could never have done it, and I feel really lucky about that. But, yeah, no, I'm not done. I'm, I've got plenty to do. just got to find someone no one's ever been before and uh, hope that there's enough people out there interested to uh, that'll appreciate that sort of, that side of it. You know, if you've done any sort of organised fishing, the, the, the chance to fish where no one's ever fished before, is, you should 
try and do that a couple of times before you're done, you know. And that, and some of the places that I plan to fish in the next couple of years, are, I've been there 30 years ago and never fished them properly. I want to take what I know now. Go back. And smash it. I have no doubt that you will. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? Well, I've got so many questions that I'd like to ask you just based on on the couple of conversations we've had. and um, But I think it would be way easier to do that on a fishing boat. Let's but what I would, what I, is all power to you, go hard. I want, do you make your t-shirts in to fit old men? <laughs> you're only nine years older than my husband, or ten years older than my husband. <laughs> so you're not. You're only as old as you feel, you know, like. Exactly. Um, I'm happy with that. No, I, I, I don't have any questions. I do have many. I'm not going to ask them now, but, uh, you keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a really good job and, and, um, I hope you got something out of today. Thank you. I got, it's fascinating. Thanks, Dean. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. Thanks for listening.